Okay, so this is not a prop nor a part of the message. However, we found this in the parking lot before the first service. And so I gave three options to people. Number one, because of your sheer terror of being in front of people, you would pretend you never had a phone. <laughs> Go to Verizon and buy a new one later today. Two, you would for the moment pretend you never had a phone and then after the service, because I said in that share, you would slide up there and pick it up. Or you would be bold and just walk up and say, that's my phone, I want it. I'm a, since it didn't get picked up, I'm wondering if it was somebody who was in kids' warehouse. Yes? Okay. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Okay. If it's yours, it's going to be right here. If it's not, I, I don't know, really. Probably like in a number of you, I had a series of summer jobs when I was in high school. All sorts of different things. I mean, really, you took the job, it gave you some money. I worked at a grocery store as a box boy, never got to the cashier, box boy slash bag guy. I worked outside, you know, in a park. Uh, my worst job by far was I worked at a gas station because this is back in the day. We don't have on the go. There's not, it wasn't convenience stores. It was a gas station. It was not a full service station. It was a gas station. What that meant is people pulled up and they got gas, and they left. So what I did is I sat in the office. That's it. I mean, I was going to, there's no more. I sat in the office and did absolutely nothing. Every once in a while, people would bring money into me. That's it. I was so bored. At that point, if you told me, hey, do you want to go outside and dig some ditches? Yes. Really, anything. I was so bored sitting there. Some of you probably know that feeling. It's like you, you would hate it if your job, or maybe sometimes you have moments in your job where you're bored and you're like, come on, give me something to do. I find boredom curious, though. Exactly what's boredom about? What is it that makes us bored? There's one writer who says, under the circumstances in which a human finds himself bored, a dog goes to sleep. Doesn't get bored, just lays down. There's something about us that when we don't have activity going on in our life, now it can be scheduled non-activity, like if you're sitting at the beach, that counts. For some, of you, for some of you, you can't handle that. You've got to have some activity. But there's something about us that doesn't deal with a lack of activity well. See, the question we've been asking through this whole series is a relatively big question, which is this, why am I unsatisfied? Why do I experience a level of chronic dissatisfaction that seeks to be filled, whether it's by goods or services or stuff or time? What exactly is that about? Something within us seems to want to drive to fill that sense of dissatisfaction. And boredom is one of those cues where we go, I got to do something to fill this need here. And here's some of the common ways that we engage with doing activity. And then it's to boredom, the sense that something's off, something's amiss. One of them is token involvement. You know, we get this sense that I ought to be doing something more here with my life. And so I'll do a little bit of token involvement somewhere. A smattering of this, a smattering of that. And if you've tried that, you realize it didn't do a whole lot except take a little bit of your time. It may have felt like, well, I was doing perhaps what I ought to do, but it didn't really do anything in terms of your soul. 
Brothers, you, the way you found to engage the world around you is with extensive, not token, extensive, but dutiful service in some organization. There was never any great sense in which you were happy about it or alive while doing it, but you did a lot because you sort of felt like you ought to. You joined committees and you did projects, and, but at the end of the day, it didn't do a whole lot to fuel your soul. And for others, you perhaps it was joining a cause. You joined a cause for a while, and when that one sort of bored you, the boredom crept up again, you joined another one, and you went from cause to cause because you wanted to be involved in something, something to believe in, something to hold on to. I joined the Communist Party in college for a variety of reasons, and one of them was it was something to do. It was an engagement. Didn't do a whole lot for my soul, particularly when I looked at it and realized communism doesn't work. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it doesn't appear to work in our world anyway. But still, something within us wants to discover a place of engagement in the world that fills this sense of dissatisfaction and boredom and discontent. And to cut to the chase, there is an uncommon way of engaging the world that God calls us to that actually brings satisfaction to our soul, that puts together things we often hold as dichotomous that don't work together. And when we bring them together, we find a powerful, life-altering sense of satisfaction because we have found a place of serving in a way that makes us feel alive and free, not dutiful and marginally bored. And to do that, I want to look at a, a passage uh, in the Bible it, that sort of describes what it means to have an uncommon engagement of ourselves with the world around us in a way that makes a difference and produces satisfaction within our soul. And it's found in a book called First Corinthians. And it's a, a letter <clears throat> that was written by a man named Paul to an early church in a city called Corinth. And in this section, he's trying to describe to this disparate group of people, an eclectic mash of people who had come together around only one thing, which is this newfound faith in, in Jesus Christ. Nothing else tied them together. And he's trying to describe to them what it looks like to be powerfully and meaningfully engaged in the world around him. And he uses a metaphor, and this is what it says. The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. He says, I want to give you an example of what it looks like for you as an individual to be meaningfully involved with others in engaging the world around you in a soul-satisfying way. And in this, he presents something that, quite honestly, is quite uncommon from how we look at the world. And I want to give you two extremes of how we tend to look at the world and how we individuals, we individuals engage the world in a meaningful way. One of those is we believe that it has to be me. I have to, I got to be who I am. I have to be who I'm called to be. I have to serve out of the fullness of who I am. And it can't, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter if I'm connected anywhere else. In the end, the key, the soul, the center of how I live meaningfully in this world is I live fiercely independent and individualistic, not necessarily with connection with other people. That's all superfluous. People often get in the way of me living out a meaningful engagement in the world. And so I got to be me. 
there's a writer among my favorite writers named Ayn Rand. She wrote The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and she's a, a brilliant writer. And she presents this point of view strongly in a way that makes you go, wow, maybe it's true. There's something about it that's almost true, but is deeply flawed. I have to live on my own. In the end, it's simply about me and the choices that I make. And if I live that out, my connections with other peoples are, are more incidental. It's another view which says, no, I, I reject this fierce individualistic view of life. I reject this view of the autonomy of the self. The Western mindset has produced this view that we are just independent, isolated souls, that we are islands who are disconnected. I reject that. And in the end, life that looks satisfying is one where I repudiate this need to be me, and instead I emerge myself, I submerge myself in a community where I do not stand out. I am simply a part, a cog, a piece. I don't try to actualize myself. I try to submerge my needs, my wants, for the sake of others. Now, there's a part of that that, particularly if you grew up in a Catholic upbringing, resonates because it has a heavy amount of guilt in it. I, you know, it's not about me. I, I just need to repudiate my wants, my thoughts, and forget about who I am and simply be a part of something greater. Both of these have enough true-ishness in them to pull us in and to bring us down. Paul presents, and honestly, one of the, I think, the more radical teachings of the Bible, presents a view of engagement of the world that is close to them and starkly different. And he uses the metaphor of the body. I'm going to read a little further in that passage. And he says, Now the body is not made of one part, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand... I do not belong to the body, but for that reason not cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? I mean, it's really it's sort of intuitive and straightforward, but we often forget this. See, what the Bible presents in this passage and throughout is this picture of this is how you engage the world in a soul-satisfying way. You do it by being both fiercely individualistic and wholly connected. The two are not to be separated. If they are, we falter. Fiercely individualistic. Well, this picture of the body, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use, it's going to sound a bit trite for a moment, really, because I'm going to use the whole eye-hand thing, but, but it's, to me it's very profound teaching, which is this, Paul's trying to say, look, you've got to be exactly who you were designed to be if you're going to find meaningful engagement in the world. A finger is designed a certain way. A thumb, the opposable thumb, really, it's a marvel. We do things that other creatures can't do. We grab because of the exact design of this thumb, which is not like the finger. Now, I cannot, no matter how hard I try, I cannot grasp this bottle with my eye. However, without my eyes, I'm going to struggle a little bit with grasping anything if it's not already there. The two work perfectly together, but they only work perfectly together when each one is fiercely committed to doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Now, the body does this naturally. What Paul's trying to get across is we don't, we forget this. We're all trying to be whatever we think the best part is. It is hard in our world to be who you're supposed to be. 
it, it may be the hardest thing of all. Because for a variety of reasons and a variety of ways, you, a thumb that is opposable, has somehow believed you ought to be something else. When I was in high school, I believed it was a bad idea for me to be smart. Because if I was smart, I got segmented into the caste system, a very strict caste system into my high school. We had the nerds, we had the jocks, we had the heads, potheads, and we had the greasers. That's who we had. I knew that if I got lumped in with the nerds, this was not going to go well for my high school career. And so what I did is I pretended not to be smart. And when in eighth grade I was offered slash pushed toward going into an accelerated class, I said, no, I wouldn't do it. My parents let me have my way. I wouldn't do it. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That's what I said. I said, you've got to be kidding me. If I go into that class, all of my friends will think I'm a nerd and nobody will care about me. No, I'm not doing it. Somehow I convinced myself that being smart was a bad thing. And so I submerged it. I didn't let my friends see too much. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not brilliant. I'm not trying to say that. But there was a certain part of me that thought being intelligent, being in, in, having an intellectual bent is a bad thing for me. And so I pressed it down. It, it took some years before I thought, oh, no, no, it's okay. It's okay to be who I am. I mean, gee, I'm a 51-year-old who loves the philosophy of communication. And I'm okay with saying that now. Nine people in the world care about that. I care about the whys of communication. I want to understand the background behind words and ask anybody in the staff, get me started just for a moment about words. I mean, to me, it's fascinating. I love the whys and the behind the scenes. That's who I am. I can remember, remember intricate parts of a theory of philosophy and if I met you last week, I might forget your name. It's who, it's who I am. There's something about my wiring that is bent a certain way. But life will try to stamp out who you actually are and make us all into whatever. Whatever the current best body part is. In a body, it never happens. My foot never tries to be my hand. And the only reason my body functions well is because each piece is finely tuned and crafted for a purpose and lives that purpose out wholly. Now, the second thing that's important, though, is in this analogy, fiercely independent, finely tuned body parts are then joined and wholly and inextricably connected in such a way that each is fine-tuned design and effectiveness enhances the others, such that now my eye, whose only job is to see, it is not to eat, it is not to grasp, it is not to smell, my eye, whose only job it is to see, helps my hand do marvelous things that it could not do. And the only reason the body works is finely tuned parts designed for a single purpose are united to one another so that more happens through the sum of my parts than individual parts by each part being that part. 
And so Paul sort of drills home this analogy. It's used in other parts of the Bible as well to say, this is how you live a meaningful engagement in the world. You begin by figuring out who in the world am I and how do I serve? How do I uniquely, how am I uniquely fine-tuned for impact? And then I unite that with other people of like mind. And when I do that, marvelous things happen. I teach. Got a handful of gifts. I teach. Warehouse is an eclectic mix of people who do all sorts of things. I teach. Other people make sure things don't break. Corey makes sure that I sound okay through this. He can't give me a British accent, which would really be cool. But he can make sure that you hear me. Somebody just volunteered to enter our finance team who's an accountant. We need an accountant. Lord, don't let me do that. So what if everybody wants to say, oh, but I want to be the accountant. I want to be the teacher. I want to be the artist. I want to be the ones who put that stuff on the outside. Well, I want to be the musician. That seems cool. 20 bucks to anybody you can... No, I'm not kidding. 20 cents to anybody who can predict what instrument I played in high school. Junior high, really. The organ. (laughs) Wish I was kidding. I'm not. The organ. That's what you call irony. (laughs) I play the organ because at that time, there were bands who did the organ, like, you know, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I know a number of you are going, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Chicago. They did the organ, so it was, I was going to say it was cool. It was really never cool. However, I played the organ. You know why I stopped? I wasn't any good. Seriously, I'm not, I don't have musical gifts. There are, in this, just in this room of several hundred people, there are this huge eclectic mix of gifts. Some of you who excel at leadership. Some of you who serve others beautifully. Some of you who are a great hosts. Some of you who build things. Some of you have incredible creative minds. Some of you who teach. Some of you who are accountants. Some of you are really good at logistics. All this group of people has finely tuned, crafted gifts and passions. And this powerful things happen when a group of people voluntarily chooses to take that eclectic mix of gifts and passions and say, we will unite them in such a way that we become a force. You see, so often the view of a a community is sort of Borgian, Star Trek Next Generation reference, sort of Borgian with, you know, seven of nine. We're we're interchangeable cogs. One of the the, uh, prominent uh, business metaphors, different than the body, was the idea of a machine. Independent, just cogs. If this one breaks down, I put another one in. We're just cogs. And that's one of our fears. If I get a part of a group, then I get submerged. My identity gets lost. Rather... Powerful engagement in the world happens when identities don't get lost, they get amplified. When a community chooses to celebrate divergence, when it chooses to let people excel at what they are good at, and then when they combine those forces, then, like the body, it does things that none of the individual parts could do, but each individual part actually has to do what it does. Now, Does it matter? Let's say. 
let's say we do the hard work of figuring out who, what we're passionate about, what our personality is, what our gifts, where they lie. Does it matter what sort of organization we connect them to? I think it does. There are a number of good things to do. Many of you find a great level of outlet and impact in your workplace. You're able to take specific gifts that you have, make a contribution to the economic health of our society, and at the same time find an inroads in people's lives, and you find great joy in that. And yet I maintain that still, above that, there is one organization that has the power to change the world. And I think it's the church. I believe the church is the hope of the world. Why do I believe that? Not because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I believe that. The church is the hope of the world. Why? Because it is the entity on earth, the one body, the one mechanism whereby God has sought to dispense the gospel. That it's a place that teaches that what religion looks like is not bad people becoming a little bit better, but people finding freedom. It's an entity where it teaches that there is a God of the universe who isn't simply out there and indifferent, but who passionately pursues you. It's an entity that, when it functions well, celebrates the individuals in its midst. It's an entity that calls us to the places of deepest satisfaction which then from this entity we may move out into the world and use that. I believe that the church is the hope of the world because the gospel is the hope of the world. The gospel, the story of a God who pursued humanity, the story of a God who sent his son to earth to die for us, the story of redemption, the story that every single one of us matters and matters deeply to God, the story that there is no wasted or lost moment the story that the God of the universe right now is seeking to move into your life to make you freer than you've ever been. The story of life. The gospel is the hope of the world. And so does it matter where we connect our gifts? I think it does. There are many good organizations. But I stand before you today with the firm belief that this place, Warehouse, among others like it, is a place where as we take our eclectic mix of gifts and passions and we apply them together like a body, lives get changed. Hope arises. And I fear that too often what happens is we live in a Western society where spectating becomes de rigueur, the way that we live our lives. It's too easy to sit in the ends, edges. It's easy at warehouse to sit in the edge. I mean, look how dark it is in here. You can sit in the back and all you got to do is slide out a few minutes before the service ends, come in a few minutes late, which at warehouse is 20. <laughs> slide out a few minutes early and you can get some stuff. You can get some information and you can move out. Could, could I just say this? You can do that but your soul wants more. You know, that, 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 one of those lines in the song, you know, that we are searching for something to believe in, 
Some people believe that, well, we're searching for something you believe in because humanity for some reason has a need to believe in something, which to me just sounds sort of crazy. Why search for something that doesn't exist? Where would that have come from? We search for something to believe in because there's actually something there. We're called to impact, to utilize our gifts for the sake of a higher purpose because, number one, there's a higher purpose. Number two, you actually got gifts and you can make a difference in the world. But quite honestly, you will never make the difference that you could possibly make by yourself than you can make connected. Do not kill off your individualism. Do not kill off your giftedness. Do not let anybody tell you you should be somebody different than who you are. And yet, if you connect that in a broader group, lives get changed. Power goes forward. And yet we live in an information age where it's easy for us simply to get information and never act. It's all theory. There's this passage I really like because of how direct it is in the, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of the early books of the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy is essentially a, a, almost like a sermon. It's a retelling. And there's a place where the writer says, look, I've, I've set before you life and death. I've told you that this will make you alive and this will kill you. I've told you what will bind you and what will free you. And then it just makes this stark and simple statement. Choose life. Make a choice. Every day we make choices. Some of those choices make us alive and some of those, some of those breed death. Every day we make a choice. Will we utilize who we are to engage a greater purpose in ourselves? Or will we slip out the proverbial door? I will tell you without fear of hesitation that this body needs you. Needs you. You're different than me. I'm different than you. You're uniquely crafted. You will find a place of soul satisfaction when you take that step in and engage. You'll also see amazing things happen in the world. At the end of the day, why really do I believe the church is the hope of the world? Why am I passionate about us being a place that helps people to connect with God? Because there's this passage in the Bible where it's a, it's a song. The guy's writing a song and it's almost like he's struggling to find a metaphor. In the midst of chronic dissatisfaction of our lives, he says, I just had this moment where I connected with God and my soul is satisfied as with the richest of foods. You know, seeking that metaphor to try to make sense of it. What it felt like is like, it's like, you know when you have that meal and it's just perfect? It's rich and it's luxurious and it's, it's like I just enjoyed every bite of it. Nan and I were in a restaurant in, in, in D.C. celebrating our anniversary about a month back and we found this restaurant and every bite of it was wonderful. And there was that sense of finishing where you just felt so satisfied, full in all the right ways. That's what the writer in that psalm tries to articulate. It's like, that's, ah, oh God, that's why you are there. Our souls get satisfied in a life of chronic dissatisfaction. Our souls get satisfied as with the richest of foods when we connect with you. 
And so here we stand, a group of people with the power to utilize who we are, connect with one another in such a way that people find satisfaction like they never could. My simple request to you is don't stand on the sidelines anymore. For your own sake, for the sake of the world around you, choose life. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us to be people who are willing and open to killing off notions of who we're not, who are willing and open to step forward and serve not as a token, not out of duty, not because it's a cause, but because in you and through you is a life that is desperately needed for us and for others. Would you awaken our souls this morning? Make us more free by a determination of the heart to serve from the fullest of exactly who we are for the sake of something far greater in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to receive our offering. It opens up this back end of our service as a way to remind ourselves that our response is exactly that. It's a response. We respond to the movement, the passion of God toward us.